Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is a lovely summer's day out there, uh, which shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, it's not yet quite the middle of September, uh, but certainly the hot days, the dog days of summer have seemingly passed away. If you manage to get through the weekend without boiling, uh, as per the weather reports would have you believe, uh, well done. And welcome to yet another part uh, of the United Kingdom, which actually is beginning to look rather similar to a failing state. I mean, I know that uh, we've now got um, Baroness Kennedy talking about how lawyers are being put upon in such a way in this country uh, that it's almost like living in a dictatorship. She's obviously never lived in an actual dictatorship, otherwise she wouldn't say anything quite so stupid. But coming up, talking of common sense, Peter Hitchens joins us, columnist of the Mail on Sunday, of course. Uh, he's written an elegy uh, for town clerks. Uh, he's going to be telling us what went wrong with our local government. And it certainly seems to be going wrong at quite a pace. We've got a story this morning in which there's a village in the New Forest, we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, where people uh, feel so abandoned by the police they're turning to vigilante reports and vigilante uh, displays I should say uh, and vigilante um, patrols to try and stop the plague of shoplifting that's going on uh, in what looks to be a very typically uh, British little sort of town little village which looks idyllic uh, in the New Forest a lovely little part of the world uh, and yet they seem to have no hope or faith in the way the police will police it for them uh, and it's in the hands basically of criminals. We've seen uh, the devil dog conversation uh, we just had in the last hour where these dogs are running about XL bullies you know attacking people at random it just seemed absolutely utterly ludicrous uh, but let us kick things off uh, in this hour with Peter Hitchens. Peter a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You know, I mean, I've got some bad news. You're absolutely right to say that uh, you expect dozens of councils to go the way of Birmingham. I mean, it would seem as though that is exactly what's about to happen. Um, But you wrote this weekend about sort of how we lost our grip on the local council or how the local council lost their grip on the local council. Tell us. Well, it was all part of that strange Pied Piper dream time, really, of the late 60s and then the early 70s when it began to take practical effect. I remember I was uh, 50 years ago now that I was working on my first local paper and soon after I arrived there, the local council was transformed from what it had been, a, an ordinary borough council into some strange new thing called a district council. The mm. town clerk disappeared, all the, uh, the old sort of brown lino, uh, stringent uh, and, and a very tightly governed effects of old fashioned local government seemed to vanish. It now had a chief executive with uh, efficient glasses and a 
big new desk. Uh, everything was uh, everything was surrounded by more and more verbiage, and he noticed quite quickly that more money seemed to be being spent, that uh, the things which people had been used to were, were vanishing. Local government in general became, I think, one of the places where the, the 60s student generation ended up. Now, there'd always been, really, since the beginning of the 20th century, left-wing people had gone to local government and make changes, but they'd come up against very simple limits, mm. that's to say, budgets. But around the same time, of course, the, 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 the increasing subsidization of local government by central government made that less uh, made that m much less tight the whole the whole basis of local government that it spent what it raised in what were then called rates began to disappear and the politicization seemed to take place everywhere everything was uh, was was a campaign of one kind or another and, and also you notice that people would be I, i'm not being specific here but places where i you notice that people would be made uh, would be given very substantial redundancy payments and then shortly afterwards rehired uh, the cost of pensions for these uh, and the, the 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 size of salaries for local government increased and I'd say it became simultaneously a place where a lot of money seemed to be rushing through the corridors in great rivers of gold and where people could do practically anything uh, provided it was it was politically correct the whole politically correct revolution which overtook central government really in the 90s after the Blairite takeover had begun in town halls and, uh, and county halls in the previous decade. So it's been part of the decline of the country. Trying to explain it all, I used to wonder whether we had in fact put something in the water. Uh, and I, I came to the conclusion in the end that the most fundamental change which took place in that era, which I've written a book about, uh, was the destruction of proper education. Mm. Uh, that proper old-fashioned conservative education where the, the idea was that you, the pupil, learnt a, a, a defined type of knowledge from teachers who were very well educated and able to pass it on to you in disciplined surroundings, was just swept away. And once you did that, basically you have no restraints. Mm. Anybody can do what they like because nobody knows any better. And those who have determination to change the world can do it very easily. Mm. I think that was a pivotal change of yeah. the, the absolute the opening of the gates of Cultural Revolution. And these things all happened around about the same time. The schools were destroyed in 65, and the rest of the country began to follow pretty rapidly uh, in really the late 60s and early 70s in, in ways which were observable even back then and accelerated hugely in the 1990s after the, after the Blair takeover. Yes, indeed. Because as you quite rightly say, most people probably don't know who their councillor is, and even worse, yeah. they have no clue as to how big the whole business of council-run offices has become because there are literally dozens and dozens of people working on things that you don't even know about. Um, most of them now, a lot of them anyway, work from home. Some councils have even got to the point where they're using their offices so sparsely that they're talking about selling them off. Well, it's very possible. I, I, obviously, I know who, who, who my councils are. An interesting thing, the, the city in which I live, Oxford, uh, until these great reforms came in, in the 1970s was something called the county borough, which meant it was run as if it was a county. Everything was run from the same town hall, mm. roads, schools, uh, the, the whole the whole lot was all run from the same place. Then, in the new these new reforms, it was divided up between the the city council and the surrounding county council. With, so, if you rang either of them up and said, "Can you fix this?" they'd start saying, "Well, no, that's not us. That's the other lot," yeah. and it became impossible to know who who to turn to. And the whole, all the, the boundaries were redrawn. People stopped knowing who their councillors were, 
And one of the extraordinary side effects of this is that any member of parliament will tell you is that over the subsequent 40 years, their, their caseload of people coming to surgeries with problems hugely increased because people brought to them uh, the kind of drainpipe stuff which used to be taken to local councillors, yeah. but they didn't know who their councillors were, so they went to their MPs. So MPs became, to a great extent, some social workers mm. because of the, 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 the fading interest in and knowledge of local government among people. I know it's a dull subject when you hear the worst local government, but in fact it, it impacts on so many things. Yeah. Well, do you know what I also put it down to, and you mentioned at your early stages of journalism working for the local paper, where people were training uh, and, and, and working all, all the time. Some people never moved out of their local paper, and every single week they were down at the local courthouse covering various you know, incidents that might be minor but wouldn't make the national papers in the same way they were covering council meetings. There is now no local paper, I believe, that actually sits in on council meetings anywhere in the country. So nobody even knows what's going on because it's not reported. Is that true? It's not read about. It, it, it's shocking but not surprising if you know what I mean I, I, the, the decline of local newspapers for, for those of us who worked in them has been an astonishing thing I know the, the first one that I worked on for instance had a full time librarian mm. uh, with a huge archive and, uh, and very carefully indexed library cuttings records yeah. going back probably for a century mm. and, uh, and that, that, I, what, what will now have happened to that enormous archive and to the person who ran it there were reporters there on the staff who were in their 40s and 50s who'd lived there all their lives, yeah. who knew their way intimately around the town, who knew everybody. I don't think that happens no. in most places. Anymore. Of course, council meetings and committee meetings and parish council meetings, and for heaven's sake, flower shows were covered. And above all things, because you can't really have justice if it's not seen to be done, the courts were covered. Yeah. There, was, there was a day when two or three of us weren't down at the magistrate's court and the crown court covering the cases there. I, I'm not sure this happens no, anymore. And it, it doesn't. How, how on earth can we be sure that justice is being done? Well, that's the exact problem because, you know, certainly in my uh, uh, experience, in every place that I've ever had to go and do a job or in every place that I've ever sent anyone to do a job, you know, you always used to say, go and hook up with the local guy and find out what he knows. Now there isn't one. You know, there's literally nobody because it became um, no, too I, expensive. I just, Everything just, went online and everything local newspaper reporting now uh, is literally sort of puff pieces for, for people who want to try and get something in them. Well, it certainly is a big hole in our previously functioning democracy. And it, it is one of the reasons why I think local government gets away with so much. I yes. They wouldn't have got away with what they get. I mean, you describe... Uh, uh, you decisions that, that are taken that go without being criticised. Yeah. Astonishing things. Which it, indeed. You, you describe the town halls as concrete corridors of mediocrity. And I mean, the concrete thing, I suppose, for most people... Has, well, become, yeah. has become a kind of um, uh, an absolute kind of totem pole, if you like, for what's gone wrong uh, in Britain. Somebody thought it was a good idea to use a building material that would literally self-combust or self-destruct in uh, 30 not, years. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't last. It's extraordinary. I, again, this is one of the things about being fantastically old is remembering in the 1950s, for instance, living in a rather lovely town in Sussex called Chichester, mm. And it had a fine old brick and stone Victorian railway station. And they smashed it up and replaced it with this tremendously modern plate glass and tile and concrete job, uh, which the last time I looked at it uh, was, was, was absolutely shabby and miserable and crummy and hadn't lasted the course at all. 
Whereas if they left the Victorian one alone, it would still be standing and would be restorable. If the, the decision to go for concrete in public buildings, for schools, offices, uh, and courtrooms, everything, it was, it was a terrible mistake and doesn't seem to have had uh, any real rational basis. Mm. We should, have, we, should, we should have stuck with the older things to do. It, it, but everything that was new in that period was somehow given a free pass. If it yeah. was new, it was good. Yeah. If it was new, if it was new, it was automatically progress rather than change. Yeah. And one of the great achievements of any human being is to be able to distinguish between between change and progress. Yeah. This change is bad. This change is good. Not to automatically accept that because it's new and flashy. It's good, but we entered an era in which fewer and fewer people, because they were so poorly educated, were able to discriminate mm. between the two. And so even to this day, people will say to you, but it's 2023, in, to excuse some stupidity, as if the fact that the calendar had altered had made something which was previously idiotic sensible. <laughs> Yes, it is a very good way of summing it up. Stay with us, Peter. We've got more to talk about, including uh, a bit of cycling. I might even ask you a bit about this new uh, Suella Braverman idea of banning uh, XL bully dogs. You and I have been down this road before with the Dangerous Dogs Act. We'll see what you make of it. Uh, This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Talk TV. Uh, we've been talking to Peter Hitchens from The Man on Sunday, who's with us uh, still. We've been talking about the state of uh, uh, the nation, the fact that there's so much um, money is now being wasted by councils that many of them are going bankrupt. Um, of course, we saw uh, in the annual sort of roundup of salaries, um, and this was part of the, uh, the stuff you were talking about, Peter, that there's sort of so many thousands of people now working in local government who make in excess of £100,000 a year each. And it's, it's kind of become a bit of an epidemic in itself. It is extraordinary, isn't it, the, the, the levels of payment in, in the public sector. Just again, when I was in, in Fleet Street, when the Fleet Street was still a pretty big uh, business with huge uh, two and three and four million circulations, yeah. uh, we, we would work alongside BBC uh, reporters. And because they were in the public sector, it was always assumed they'd be worse off than, than us in the private sector because our, our basis was a, was a commercial organisation uh, where the the 
the company could make enough money to pay us what it wanted to. Whereas in the, in the BBC, based on the license fee, they couldn't really expect that. Right. Uh, now it seems to have gone into reverse. I, I strongly suspect that uh, the, the, the most uh, Fleet Street and, and national newspaper journalists have paid less than their BBC counterparts. Yeah. And this is in general, the, the public sector has become the place to go if you want a large salary and a reliable pension. Yeah. And that's a, another extraordinary change. And you, you used to get one thing in the public sector, which, which was security of employment. Uh, but you paid for that in, in, in lower salaries and benefits. But all that's gone around the other way in, these, in, this, in this period. It's yeah. The, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough. Worry, worry about our economy. I don't resent other people being paid well. I just think, where's it coming from? And, 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 and can it conceivably be sustained? And you almost get, I remember when I was working in Edinburgh um, yeah, a couple of decades ago um, when I found out that the chief executive up there was on about half a million a year. Um, and of course, the, yeah. the answer was always, well, of course, we have to pay commensurate salaries with the private sector. And he's running a £40 billion budget. And I'm going, yeah, well, all, everything that you've just said yeah. makes no sense at all. Why has he got a £40 billion budget? You know, which other job could he do uh, conceivably in the private sector? And why, and why would he ever be worth half a million pounds of public money? The, I mean, these aren't real businesses. Real businesses cannot, by law, force people to pay for them. No. Uh, but, you know, but we all get council tax demands and we all pay our BBC licence fee. And we, we have to because it's it's the law. Mm. Uh, if, if, you want to, if you want people to buy your newspaper or, or, or listen to your, t your radio station or watch your TV station, you, you've got to get them to do it. And if they don't do it, the advertisers won't come and, the, and, and therefore the revenue won't be there. It's not the same as running a business. No. I, I, it's, so they should do. It's got out of control, but how it will ever be got back into control. And one of the, the thing about the, these bankruptcies, which is terrifying, is that the way in which so many things come back under control, which have got out of control, is catastrophe. Mm. It really is. Yeah, just hyper, hyperinflation in, in, in economies. Uh, bankruptcies in local government, all these kinds of things, it, 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 that's how it ends because nobody will reform yeah. it when at the time it could have been reformed. And unlike businesses, they never ever cut their cloth, they just carry on spending. Um, before we talk about cycling, which I want to get to before we end, um, yeah. let me ask you about Suella Braverman's attempt this morning, we're told, to try and ban a particular type of dog, which is known as an XL bully dog. Uh, there's been a series of horrific uh, Sort of incidents and deaths, and I was going to say, you and I are veterans of the Dangerous Dogs Act, which which single handedly failed to well, work. Well, I, I, I missed it actually. I was, I, I think, I was living in Russia. At the ah, time okay. <laughs> I, I, I missed it. I'm, I'm aware of the fact that it was it was a legislated haste and repentant leisure moment. It was. It's difficult, I, it, but I think the the idea that we should go back to dog licensing uh, is is probably sensible and if you if it if it could only be enforced but as with so many other things about modern society it could only be enforced if if, if there were a police force and we don't have a police force at the moment mm. um, i mean as ever as ever our, there is no police there's no law no i mean as ever our listeners and viewers always come up with a very sensible um, answer for all of it paddy and andover says the answer to these dogs is blindingly obvious all dogs must be muzzled in public easy just like seatbelt law then there's no need to ban anything I mean, I don't well, know. What, I mean, that is that is one way of doing it, I suppose. Enforce it is the problem. I, as, I strongly suspect that in recent years, the number of people wearing seatbelts has greatly declined because, again, the police aren't there. Hmm. Although most, again, police, if you've got a new car, most of the cars well will make such an annoying sound if you don't put the seatbelt on that people would do it, wouldn't they? I don't know. I, it, it's, 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 it, I suppose, possibly. I, it, I'm sure people who really don't want to wear seatbelts <laughs> would find a way of disabling it. When I, when I was living in Moscow, it's, it, it, wearing a seatbelt was, was basically a sign that you, you, 
complete failure. You've given being. up, you yes. Yes. And, 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 and it, it, when I got into, into Russian's cars and put the seatbelt on, they looked at me as if I was, well, I won't say what they thought I was. It was a look of great contempt. They would, they would even drive along with one hand on the steering wheel and the seatbelt pulled across their front, but not plugged in. Right. Uh, in case the police traffic yeah. bureau spotted them, because they would rather do that than put the seatbelt on. Mm. Uh, the, the madness that people go into because they they they, they believe it's wrong. Ah. But well, can I briefly segue from this into the subject of James Bond? Yes, of course. Uh, who who in this weird new James Bond novel by Charlie Higson on His Majesty's Secret Service, which I sort of reviewed in the columns week, wears seatbelts, which is very unbondish. Yes, me, and eats yogurt for breakfast. Now, <laughs> drinks drinks bottled water. Out of, I, he's not to mention his politics, which are indeed more or less the politics of modern local government, and, and is also, I have to tell you, one hundred and two years old. It's a very strange book. I'm surprised there hasn't been more fuss about it. People should take a look at it. Because I think less and less uh, nowadays people get upset about the changing of all um, values that used to exist into something completely different. You know, hence, I mean, we're going to talk about it next, coming up next with Isabel Oakeshott, that, you know, the last night the prom seems to have turned into a, a sort of frenzy of flag waving, but not of the Union flag, but rather of the European Union flag, which just seems so bizarre. You're kind of going, well, why? You know. Well, you can sort of work out how it happened, can't you? You can, but it doesn't make it any yeah, better. Not, not, not very hard. I mean, if, it, 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 I have to, you have to pay tribute to whoever was behind it. I mean, they did a very good job. <laughs> they they really there. did. But, yeah, I mean, um, this, before but this, the cycling uh, argument I wanted to get into as well, because the, yeah, sure. the show started this morning with somebody reporting into us that there were police outside a bank, uh, and you'll know that sort of... Um, crossroads there outside of Threadneedle Street in the Bank of England, yeah. handing out um, tickets to cyclists who were going through red lights, which as far as I know is a first. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of that ever happening. But the fight, the battle goes on. You were talking this weekend about the Dutch cycling experience and how yes. it wasn't as straightforward as everybody makes out. Oh, absolutely not. Up to the early 1970s, uh, the, the, the Netherlands were very, very like Britain in being totally dominated by the car. And then people began to look around and say, well, this is, this is absurd. We've made a mistake. And huge efforts were made to start treating cyclists as if they were human beings instead of as a, a despised uh, race of lunatics who didn't believe in driving around in cars. Right. In fact, of course, almost all cyclists do drive cars and, and, and on, on other occasions, but they choose to ride bicycles when it's, it, it makes more sense. A big political battle, city by city, uh, in, in get, getting the, the to bring in these changes. And when they were brought in, people realized how good they were, how much more peaceful, friendly, uh, quiet and healthy uh, they made life in, in Dutch cities. And people say, well, Dutch cities are flat. Well, of course, the Netherlands is flat, but it, it, most of, of, of the world is reasonably flat. There aren't many cities which, which contain sort of vertical hills, and even when they do, you can actually, if you do a lot of cycling, ride up them, and it's jolly good for you. And if you don't feel like riding up them, can I make a suggestion? Get off and push. Yeah. It's not that hard. It doesn't last that long. It doesn't. The fact that the, the, the Britain isn't totally flat as a pancake doesn't mean we couldn't have <laughs> the sort of cycling arrangements that the Netherlands have. Other people say, well, it's a very small country. Like I say, so what? Uh, it, 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 we're not expecting people to ride from end to end of it on, on bicycles. We're just expecting them to be able to say to get from one's 
uh, village or, or town to another without being erased yeah. by a juggernaut. And that's all that, that, that's being asked for. The other fascinating thing about the Dutch experiment is that the wearing of the, those daft styrofoam bowls called cycle helmets is almost totally unknown mm. uh, because what the Dutch have done is they've made cycling safe. What helmets do is they, they salve the consciences of drivers by making cyclists responsible for their own safety. Well, it, someday, any fanatic for cycle helmets, just stop from and examine one of those things and try to work out how much help it's going to be to you if anything serious yeah. happens. It, it, the, the protection, the best protection for cyclists is to do what the Dutch had done. It's, it's created a much more healthy country. I was, I was there last week. It's extraordinary. You see so many older people whizzing around on bicycles, healthy and, and, and obviously living, living full lives because this exercise is built into their lives. They don't need to go to gyms or anything like that. What restrictions, but what restrictions, if any, did they have to then put on car drivers though to get to that point? Well, the restrictions are that there are cycle lanes, and, and many of them are, are totally segregated. If the if the speed of the traffic is above about twenty miles an hour, the the, the cycle lane has to be set, separated by a barrier of some kind from the road. And they've just built all this stuff. It's not just somebody painting a, hmm. a, a green stripe on the road and expecting everyone to pay attention to it. It's it's proper segregation. It's expensive to begin with, but I actually have a strong suspicion. Uh, that the the huge reduction in the number of accidents which which results from it, and the great increase in the, the the general level of health of a large part of the, of the Dutch population pays for that. And in any case, it just makes life more pleasant, and it makes people more healthy. And this one of the really most important things about about encouraging cycling in society is that it does make people more healthy. Uh, which must be an objective we all want. And one of the things that, that we do in the health service is we spend so much time patching up and trying to put right people who, who have become unhealthy because of the unhealthy lifestyle, which a, a car-dominated country more or less imposes on you. Yeah. Well, listen, well, we have to have a special debate on this, I suspect, because there's going to be Let's plenty of people who would want to uh, talk about it. Peter, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, columnist at the Mail on Sunday. Uh, back on Sunday, of course, in uh, the Mail on Sunday. Look out for that. Coming up next, though, we're going to talk to Isabel Oakeshott, uh, who found herself in the middle of a sort of viral, um, shall we say, a social media uh, scenario at the weekend because of what happened at the last night of the proms uh, on Friday night at the Albert Hall. Of course, um, it became kind of EU fest, bizarre. We'll find out how. Coming next. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 